Hello and welcome to What Do You Do, a podcast series all about the day-to-day working life of the UK and beyond, brought to you by recruiter Alice McDermott, aka me. Each episode, I speak to professionals from a variety of different fields to discover what their job really, truly entails, from when they begin their day to when they go home. What are the trials? What are the tribulations? What myths and or stereotypes might be debunked? And what career advice might be on offer for those exploring their options? So today's guest is Ebo. He is a junior doctor. We are friends from 2004, I think was when we first met um, at school. He's currently a senior house officer, which is one of the longer titles in terms of tenure. Registrar is upcoming and he has since graduating been a house officer. So he's three years into his working life. He continues to take exams. In fact, the day of recording, he just um, finished preparing for one. He was also in the midst of doing the selections that you have to do, which is where you choose what part of the country that you want to go to. Uh, You don't get too much choice. Um, Again, people who may have read that memoir will be familiar with the fact that you just go where the job takes you. So he was a little bit nervous and had the choice of about 500 different hospitals and had to order about 100 of them. And we're just waiting to see where where he will end up come September this year. So Ebo is in the middle also of deciding on his specialism. Um, It's different for every doctor, but he thinks that he will focus on internal medicine. We'll hear all about this during the conversation. He is someone who I've always admired. And his answers, I'm sure you'll hear, are not just modest, but they really do address some of the questions that we face um, when we're thinking about how we treat the people of the NHS and what we do going forward in terms of looking at hours, in terms of looking at career paths and how we can structure them better. Some of the things that we cover are a little bit graphic, so be careful if you have a squeamish tummy. During our conversation, we cover a variety of different topics from where he started his career to when he knew he wanted to be a doctor to where he sees himself in the future. We also discuss the nobility or supposed perceived nobility of the medical profession and if he really feels that he embodies that. I'm sure you'll hear that he is someone who is super modest and also very relaxed about his day-to-day, which is perhaps the reason why he is such uh, an excellent doctor and I can imagine having an amazing bedside manner. We discussed the day-to-day. Is he really a glorified secretary? Is it all drama-filled, pacing it down the corridors and banging open saloon doors and saving lives? Well, as it turns out, sometimes it really is like that. But sometimes it's prescribing fan therapy and writing reams and reams of notes well into the night. It goes without saying that the views represented in today's episode are Ebo's and Ebo's alone and not those of the NHS. So join me in asking Ebo, what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) So for context, we've been friends for about 15 years now. First met you in year seven. You were on the bus from Southgate. I was on the bus from Barnet. Bit of a belly, some you know thin metal wire glasses, uh, uncombed a, hair. Yeah, I was an extremely lanky individual with protruding braces. It had to be done. Yeah, had to be done. <laughs> so worth it now. Um, you know, I remember really clearly when everyone decided to do their options and the atmosphere in the common room was electric and people were saying, I'm going to do history of art, I'm going to do history of art and Spanish, I'm going to do psychology. And then there were those who were doing the like M 
cat or the lat, whatever it's called, <laughs> for the Oxbridge um, yeah. uh, applications. And then there was a particular set of people, you included, who were going to do medicine. Um, you know, ha- tell me a bit about that. Tell me about those first moments when you decided that you wanted to be a doctor. It was what you thought your adult self would enjoy was that even something which crossed your mind what was your thought process well I guess I'd have to go down to pre-secondary school days I actually found my old yearbook from primary school not too long ago and I specifically said that I wanted to do that then and I think it's been more of a self-fulfilling prophecy rather than a lifelong dream I think I said it amongst other things you know spy included and I've just I just persisted saying it and then I actually pursued that dream. So I don't think I really knew what it entailed. I'd say around 14, 15 is when I looked into it a bit more, started talking to more people and obviously at 16 started thinking about, oh, wow, well, I really got to do this now. I liked languages, but I thought, you know what, going down the science route, those are my strongest subjects and... I guess I've got to do this now. I've got to look into what exams you need beforehand. Uh, I've got to look into different styles of learning at university. And am I actually going to be cut out for this career? It's not just going to be like scrubs, which I wish I had hoped <laughs> or, uh, you know, it's not going to be as dramatic as Grey's. But mm. yeah, it was. Yeah, that was the thought process. I'd say at 16, 17 common room times, it was, wow, this is real. Am I really going to sign myself up for this? You know, in, in for a penny, in for a pound, that kind of thing. But yeah. It's so interesting that we don't have the same approach to life at all. We're from quite similar backgrounds and um, we did have, I would say, a fairly similar experience at secondary school in terms of the friends that we hung out with, um, the teachers that we were like in with, but the, the fact that you knew so early on that it was what you wanted to do must be something which is prevalent throughout the community of doctors have you found that amongst your peers? I definitely agree. I'd say it's there were a small sector of people at med school who are like, oh, yeah, I just decided to do this at 16. And I was just thinking, how the hell? Because I've been thinking about this since I was 10. <laughs> but I, I would say, yeah, most people do make that decision very early on. And... It's funny you talk about the approach to life. I, I look back and I'm, I'm like, oh, wow, what a what a burden to say I'm going to do this and I'm going to f- put my mind to it. And When you're so young. Yeah, it, I think that's quite a lot, actually, looking back. I, it felt quite normal at the time, but looking back, that was quite a lot. And when I think about, you know, where my mind was, I think... I think I was like, everyone was saying, you've, you've, if you're going to do this, you've got to do this. And that's not strictly speaking true. I'd, I'd say, yeah, you, it's good to show commitment from early on. But I know people who have that commitment, even more so than me. And I felt intimidated thinking, I don't have that much work experience. I don't really know what I'm doing. And some of them either didn't go to med school or didn't complete med school or don't even want to be doctors anymore. And I know people the other way around who had less commitment than I did and less interest and have made great doctors. So I think... Mm. That's one message I'd get out that, you know, it's never too early or too late. Uh, even if you don't know at 18, you know, there's loads of grad medics. I know, you know, people up to 40 years old who've come onto the medical course. So, And just for clarification, that's when you decide to go to do the full medical training after you might have got an undergraduate in something like biology or exactly, biomedical yeah. science. I know people who did, who did history and then went to do medicine. Usually they've done the science degree before, but yeah, you can do anything and then go straight into medicine. So, yeah. 
It is a bit of a burden, I feel, to... Well, Adam Kay talks about it in his book, This Is Going To Hurt, the sort of cultural phenomenon of the past year or so, which has really given us an insight into not just the LHS and what it's like to work there, but the stress that doctors seem to be under from that young age when they say, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to commit to this, as you've just said. Um, there's not really any other profession, I feel, that has that long-term commitment where you say, but I mean, perhaps law when you have to do work experience, but medicine really is this ongoing training from the age of, as you say, 16, being somebody who does work experience at the local hospital, um, the exams that we've discussed as well yeah. seem to be <laughs> seem to be something that really affects the community. Again, we've not gone into too much detail about that in the past, but I know it's something which is yeah is is a very um, potentially difficult. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I do think work. about other careers, and I do wonder: do any of them have it like us? I'm not saying any of them are necessarily harder or easier, but to have, I think, the 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 con the consistent and like the persistent pressure mm. over that long a time to know that you're essentially locked into a system. I don't really know because I know people who even architecture is so hard. Like it's so, I've I've lived with architects and I have friends who are architects. It's really hard, but even then they're not necessarily trapped in that system for the rest of their career. I feel like mm. you're, you're locked in at 16, you're like, right, you're signed up, and then you're like, wait, <laughs> I, I used a pencil, and they're like, don't care, this is the contract, so uh, you're in, and yeah, so it's, yeah, it has been a lot of pressure, but one thing I will say is if you, if you want to do it, you don't feel it so much. I, mean, I can only say this is pressure in retrospect. I look back now. And I'm like, yeah, that was pressure. But at the time, I knew I wanted to do this career, so I just kind of went along with the waves. And every every hoop and hurdle, I was like, yeah, jump it. Complete it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, Ebo. So it would be great if you could tell us a bit, a little bit about you. Where are you at the moment in your career? So I'm quite early on. I'm not quite a baby doctor. I'm probably more of a you know, toddler, infant, you know, maybe... You're weaned. We, yes, I'm weaned. I'm on the solids and, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm left to go out on my own. I'm a senior house officer. So mm -hmm. just to explain, in the new school system in the past you know, decade or so, you start off as an F1 or foundation year one doctor. Then you go up into being a senior house officer. But that's quite a broad term to cover anyone who is more senior than a F1 and more junior than a registrar. So it's actually the long, probably one of the longer periods you could potentially stay at, senior house officer. And moving on beyond that, you'd be a registrar in a specific specialty. And then you'd be a senior registrar, more responsibilities, getting closer to the end, the so-called end. And then you'd become a consultant if you so wish, or mm -hmm. there's other avenues you can go down. But yeah, so I'm, I, I am three years into being a doctor. I am not in a specific specialty. I'm currently working in a respiratory job mm -hmm. and I've applied to go into my first stage of specialty training. So for me, it's internal medicine. And yeah, so I'll do that for the next three years and just waiting to hear back where I'll be based. So what does internal medicine mean for the layman? For the layman. So interestingly, this is so... Everyone knows about medicine, the career, but within the medicine career, when we say medicine, we mean things which are cured by medical means. Um, so there's still dynamic interventions, but 
we, when you say internal medicine, I, I prefer to describe it the other way around. So not pediatrics, not obstetrics, gynecology, not um, surgery, not GP medicine. So it's basically everything else. So when you go, you know, with a heart attack or you're coughing up blood or you're, I don't know, you've got angina, then that's all medical so, yeah, so when I say I'm going to specialise in internal medicine, it's all the internal organs which are cured okay. by medical means as opposed to surgical means. So, for example, someone who deals with the stomach or the bowels by medical means would be a gastroenterologist. That's a medical specialty. However, you can still have someone who cures you using surgical means, and that would be a gastro surgeon or a hepatobiliary so that's a long word yeah it's a long word yeah so hepatobiliary so that's liver and gallbladder surgeon or a colorectal surgeon so dealing with the bowel and the rectum so that's and that's the same body part so and you can still have it, it, it's just the the, the the terms medicine or medical and surgical refer to basically how conditions are managed. So, yeah, I'm going to go into medicine. I'm going to keep clean as, far, as much as I can. <laughs> and I'm going to go down the medical route. So I'll be doing, for the next three years, I'll be doing jobs like geriatric medicine, cardiology medicine, respiratory medicine. Right, okay. Yeah. So that talks about, well, rather that refers to not putting on those surgical gloves. Yeah. And delving into someone's chest. Yeah. But more about something like an intravenous method. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I, I mean, there's a bit, uh, there's always a bit of crossover. So for example, respiratory medicine. So the consultants I'm with now, they do um, br what we call bronchoscopy. So that's a camera going through the nose, looking into the lungs. So oh. that is a surgical you know, surgical-ish procedure. They insert chest drains. You know, if someone's got loads of fluid in the lungs, they need to drain them out. They insert chest drains. That is yeah. surgical. And also, no surgeon is just going to be like, right, we've got to cut them all open. Like, they are obviously <laughs> going to treat with, you know, antibiotics and, um, you know, general medical management on the ward. So there is that crossover, but you, you've got the broad specialty. So surgical, medical, pediatrics, um obstetrics gynecology gp medicine then a lot of other kind of little uh specialties yeah i feel like because i've been such a committed viewer of 24 hours in a &E <laughs> and hospital that i know loads about it so you're like chest drain i know exactly what that is i've seen it done a million times it looks disgusting and painful 100 percent could do a chest drain in the street yeah I, I know what you mean do you know what i mean it's, it's it is madness to me where you know, I'm a recruiter, I do a lot of emails, a lot of meetings, a lot of management of expectations, project management, negotiations and sales. The worst thing that can happen in my day is that I lose is it is that I lose the company money that was never actually there in the first place, but you know, I'm, I lose a prospective deal. But there's nothing really at risk here. It's so well, in some ways quite trivial in the grand scheme of things. Mm. If you have the skill set where you can do a frigging chest drain in the street without really thinking about it. You know, it feels massive. To those of us which aren't working in the industry, it's such a noble profession. It is something which we could not exist as a people without. And it's something which goes back, obviously, thousands of years. How does that feel when people say these sorts of things to you? As I bet they do when you say, yeah, I'm a doctor. 
Do you receive that sort of feedback from people frequently? So for all your many followers out there, just as to put a disclaimer, I cannot and will not be putting a chest drain out in the streets. I don't want anyone coming for me saying, he says, she said uh, he could put a chest drain in. It's like, nope, can't do diddly squat. But <laughs> um, yeah, I do get that feedback a lot. And it's like, wow, you save lives for a living. And wow, you've, you, you're such a fulfilling job. And I'm... I'm with that and I'm not with that at the same time. I'm with it in the sense that, yeah, it is fulfilling. And I, although it may not feel like it every day, ultimately, you know, I've got a lot of skills which are so unique and so, mm. so valuable. Um, even if I don't feel like I'm using them all the time, I know that I can call upon those skills, which is really nice. It's a, I feel very privileged. And this is only me barely three years into the, mm -hmm. um, my actual working career. And I do wonder what I'll be like 20 years down the line. So it's nice in that sense, especially when I hear other people feel like they kind of enjoy the job but not necessarily feel fulfilled or they don't really know what their purpose is. Like I've, I'm never, I don't see many people in the healthcare profession ever wondering what their purpose is. They may not enjoy the job, mm. but I think we all know what we're there for ultimately. I The bit that I guess I find hard to get the feedback from is people like, wow, so what are you doing today? Just saving lives and everything. <laughs> and it just... It, Honestly, if, if if people saw the crap that I do, like I don't feel like that day in day out. Yeah, there, there you do have those golden moments yeah. which are like you know, I don't know, medical drama on ABC worthy, but or like E4, I don't know. But I <laughs> <laughs> the reruns, but I don't, yeah. I don't feel like that every day. I have those moments, but what I will say is that uh, to your point about the worst thing that can happen. Maybe it's not that I'm necessarily saving lives every day, but it's that I'm preventing people from getting worse. I'd say that is probably the more accurate description. I guess in a philosophical sense, you could say it's saving lives, but I guess I feel like I am preventing people from getting worse. Mm. And when they come in, I'm preventing them from reaching death's door. I'm preventing them from struggling at home. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of, of help there. So... Yeah, so when people's like, oh, you're saving lives or you you have so many skills, I'm like, well, not not daily. But then every now and again, I'm reminded, even just last week, I had a you know, horrible experience with mm. someone who isn't great, but she deteriorated so quickly. And I was just thinking, this this could be it. Like, you know, when I say like calling in the mum, calling in the children, mm -hmm. all this kind of thing. And, you know, next day she was perky as a peach. Yeah. <laughs> That That's phrase? not a phrase. I'm going to trademark that. <laughs> trademark. It's on radio. So, yeah. So I am, um, you know, times like that, I'm I'm just reminded that it's not that like I did one action that saved her life, but it's times like that when I realize, you know, I'm not just here, you know, doing crap every day. There, there are some good bits and there are some important bits. So, yeah. For sure. I think, you know, that's really a perfect segue into the crux of this whole conversation, which is... What do you do every day? You know, again, I refer back to the book that so many people that I know have read and um, this sort of format of quotidienne, looking at the daily goings-on of somebody's life and how that all builds a bigger picture, um, as you just mentioned, of some of those golden moments, of those um, climaxes through, through the weeks and months. 
but you've described to me in the past the fact that your job is very often just like admin. Profile <laughs> <laughs> secretary. Yeah, you have mentioned that to me in the past and it's so interesting because you do, one does imagine you um, pacing it down the corridors, bashing open those saloon doors, beepers flying everywhere, blood spurting out of someone's aorta and you're holding it in with your left hand, with your right hand you're administering <laughs> an IV drip. You know, and that is partly the fault of ER and Greys. I um, blame them and completely, scarves. you know. Um, and the dramatic elements of life in the NHS for both nurses and doctors do obviously make the best stories. Yes. But what do you do every day? What does what does a normal day look like? <laughs> well, in terms of pacing it down the corridor, I try and get there before everyone else does at lunch to get my coffee. But uh, that, that's, that's the pacing I do. But uh, right. So I used to work in retail, uh, both during uni. Yeah, actually just during uni and like, in the holidays and during term time. Next to menswear. <laughs> but um, it was, I find the job quite similar at the moment at that times. Obviously take out the medical side of it, but it's a lot of people management. It's a lot of, oh, I didn't know how to do that, but you've got to figure it out, call the right people, you know, a lot of convincing patients and sometimes obviously in retail as customers, you know, what the right thing to do is giving them advice saying, I can't tell you to do X, Y, Z and this and that. It's not exactly the same, but I actually feel like that job in retail, which I did for a couple of years, it really did equip me for, for people management. That is a lot mm. of what my job is. Obviously, I've got to be um, medically sound, but a lot of the skills like organization, hard work ethic, being you know, the, finding out the most efficient way to do things because the difference between me and someone fresh out of uni is not actually my intelligence or my medical knowledge or even my medical experience. I mean, that, in on-call situations, that might make a difference, but actually the day-to-day -day job, I've just learned how to be a lot more quick, um, be a lot quicker, be a bit more efficient and, and so on. So, and I, I, that also happened when I was in retail, like I learned how to and how to fold a t-shirt in sub 10 seconds so uh, you know don't don't sure. get that you know you don't get those skills anywhere but um so to answer your question what do i do every day so i'd get in i'd prep all the notes for the ward round for when the consultant comes bustling in i know they want you to be there at nine but they might sweep in at 905 910 915 whatever takes their fancy <laughs> and uh you just go around and see all the patients now there's usually a couple of people, a couple of junior doctors on the team. So you're just going around seeing everyone. They'd ask you what their vital signs are. They'd ask you, you know, what's the latest? What's outstanding? What are the plans for home? And the more you know, the better it is. And sometimes some, some consultants are very much, they're very top heavy. They'll take the lead and you just have to, I guess, dictate and retain the information, which I guess where the information, um, the information, the term, glorified secretary comes from because mm. it does feel like that at times and then you've just got to carry out all the jobs for the rest of the afternoon some will involve you quite a lot and get you involved in the teaching and ask you a lot of questions expect you to lead the ward around a bit more the consultants are the consultants, the consultants are asking you so you, you better know your stuff so you can you can get round the ward and then also still carry out the jobs throughout the day and just to be clear this is what it's like being a ward doctor and a ward senior house officer mm. things do change a bit when you become a registrar but mm -hmm. in the ward years which are the first probably five years of everyone's career except for GPs, then yeah, it is very much like that. Mm -hmm. 
What sort of jobs do you have to do? Because when I'm thinking jobs, I'm like, do the washing. <laughs> Haver the floor. You'd be surprised what the fire. jobs list could be. Like, you know, so I will guess I'll use respiratory words. Sometimes it could be uh, update the family. So it would be giving uh. them a phone call. It could be uh, make sure you take the blood test and chase the blood test results. Make sure you speak to the microbiology department to make sure we're giving them the right antibiotics. Make sure you do a swab of their throat later make sure you write their discharge summary um oh, the note taking the note taking you know <laughs> that yeah um what other jobs would i have on my daily list um hand over to the night team that they need mm-hmm. to do this and that prescribe some fluids for the rest of the day that can go through a drip so they can, they can range from stuff like that or I guess the bigger tasks are things like referrals because it means talking to another specialty. So I'm in a respiratory world if people have pneumonia but then they've also got um, their liver functions a bit off on their blood tests, I might need to speak to the gastroenterology team on the phone call. So that would be one of the jobs where I need to pick up a phone, call a consultant who I don't know what his or her face looks like and maybe mm. never even knew their name and say, hi, I've got this patient, they've got XYZ problem, um, but actually this is the gastro problem. Can you give me some advice? Is there anything that we need to do for that? So that could be a range of jobs for yeah. one patient. Um, sometimes it's really not a lot to do, especially if they're just ill, but they need a bit of time, but they're on all the right therapy, but they just do need a bit of time. Sometimes it can be really bizarre, like, I don't know, call the care home and find out how many times a day they take a certain medication. Mm. Or one time I uh, pay, um, a consultant wrote down fan therapy and I was like, what the hell's fan therapy? It literally means putting a fan in front of their face <laughs> to help with their breathing. Like, I mean, it can be a lot of different things. Yeah. And this is where this is where it comes down to, this is where it links into my retail experience because there were so many things. I was low retail. I was like, how the hell do you do that? And you just learn on the job. There's a lot of, like, I don't think that you wouldn't be able to do it as a non-medical person. Yeah. There's a lot of things that, as a ward junior doctor, you just have to learn on the job. So if it yeah. means calling around and finding out how to do this, like a lot of the, you'd be, honestly, the skills of persuasion and charm is, if you have it, you will sail through. It's something I've been able to use since before, you know, since mm. before I became a doctor and... That okay, bedside manner. Yeah, I mean, okay, fine. I have to lower a button or two, but... <laughs> You know, you do what you gotta do. So that Calvin Klein on before you lean it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, you, you that just smells good. <laughs> you always see it like scrubs and stuff, where it's like, yeah. oh, I've got to talk to the the RC radiologist or this and that to convince them to do this scan. Like honestly, there's always got to be mm. that kind of, hey, can you push this forward? Can you can you do this and that? I I know it's a bit difficult, but if you could squeeze them into today's list, so there's there's a lot of things that you're just left to do as a junior doctor. So that that could be part of my job, which. <laughs> the glorified secretary I don't know like it's kind of fair but it's also kind of mm. not because you are doing more than that and it's not just doing jobs people get sick on the ward and that's when your medical knowledge kicks in like yeah fine from the ward on the list of jobs is probably uh, you know not you don't need to be medically trained for but yeah the people get sick people have issues and you know they might break out in a rash on the ward they might have a leg swelling they mm. might have a bit of chest pain and that's when you need the so-called secretaries who are actually doctors um to step in so that's why i'm, I'm kind of in two bits about that that, yes. that term it sounds like it's a lot of teamwork even if you don't know the identity of the rest of your team how do you feel that sense of community plays out in the workplace when the workplace is a hospital or a surgery is there camaraderie is there um 
is there a sense of togetherness? Like in all workplaces, I imagine you get all sorts. So, you know, you get old uh, Karen on the desk, who's obviously really helpful <laughs> with the bob. And uh, you get, you know, you get people who are, are less helpful and you get people who are more helpful. But maybe the difference between other jobs is that we all have the common goal of, you know, providing mm. healthcare for people mm-hmm. and providing optimum. So everyone is generally quite helpful i can talk to different teams and nobody doesn't expect nobody doesn't doesn't nobody does not nobody doesn't expect you to talk to them so if i pick up the phone and for example like i said call the you mean. call the gastro consultant or call a different department or i have to call the the radiologist to ask for a scan they don't not expect it they may give you a bit of attitude or they may be a bit difficult or they may be really friendly but nobody doesn't expect it they know that it's part of the job so there's yeah. that wide network of teamwork it's not just about the the five people you work with on your ward it's mm. a there is this whole we are a hospital we are the nhs so we all work together and sometimes you call in hospitals you know 100 miles away if they're regional centers for like say transplant units or mm. whatever so there is that sense of we are in the nhs you know one for all all for one and all that which is really nice i know that i told you i don't know where i'm going for my next job where i'm going to be it's going to be the same it's not like say you if you're going to move to a different uh, recruitment company they may not treat you the same i know that ultimately wherever i go we're all going to have the same common goal so that is nice there in terms of the actual micro teamwork from what i understand from the older doctors are people who are maybe 10 to 15 years ahead of me it was very different back then you were with your team the patients were part of the team you had the same juniors with the same registrars with the same consultants your off days were similar your night shifts were similar etc etc now the road is a lot more fragmented so i could not see a certain colleague for two weeks because of how it works or mm. i could some consultants they're expected to do your appraisal at the end of four months and they may have seen me for a handful of five weeks out of that four months just because of rotors and their rotations and everything so from what i understand teamwork used to be quite a bit more there on the micro level it used to be really fun i Work drinks exactly no birthday cakes uh, yeah literally and the thing is people uh, if you speak to any doctor who's i'd say 10 to 20 years and above older than me they would say it was so hard we had to do one one day on one day off this kind of thing like yeah. you know 24 hour on calls you know falling asleep in front of patients and all this craziness basically what's in the um what's in the book this is going to hurt because mm. adam k is what maybe he i think he graduated early 2000s I think so yes. yeah so he's a good bit ahead of me he had a bit more of that than than I do now they all say it was so hard and so rough but they all enjoyed it and I think teamwork was a big part of it and you speak to the consultant like oh back in my day and I actually envy that that micro teamwork camaraderie that you know this is my team this is my consultant this is my registrar like I don't even have ownership of anyone anymore like I've got my consultants who I work with and my colleagues but like I say, I don't always work with them a lot, but yeah. They're, in short, teamwork is uh, it's a good industry for teamwork and good work ethic and positivity. Oh, that's nice to hear. <laughs> I'm really pleased that you seem to enjoy it so much. Whenever we do speak about work, which we do often, I'm super interested in it, obviously, um, as a subject of conversation not everyone is with their friends sometimes they want to leave it in the office or in the wardroom whatever um, <laughs> what's the terminology yeah. <laughs> <Ward>. <laughs> <Bed>. <laughs> um, 
Um, but I'm so interested to find what gets people going. And it's clear when you talk about your job that you are passionate. You're so eloquent when you discuss the problems and challenges that you might face. Equally, you talk about the highs um, with a very obvious joy. Um, how do you balance that with the sort of current state of the NHS right now? You've, again, we've, we've spoken in the past that you've, you've not um, felt acutely politicised as a doctor, which is something which um, others who I know who work in the NHS do feel. And interestingly, just this month, um, there was uh, there were figures released by the NHS and uh, HSJ, which is the Health Service Journal Analysis of Data, um, which revealed that there have been 63,309 exception reports from almost 36,000 trainee medics since the introduction of the junior doctor's contract in August 2016. So essentially that is just on paper facts that doctors are, especially junior doctors, extremely overworked. The NHS is understaffed. What's your experience of that as somebody who does work on wards, who's, as someone who is expected to just get the job done? How does that affect you? Right. So you talk about me not being acutely politicised. I think there are a lot of people my age and my stage of career who are. But I will say the people who it probably affects the most are the ones in the in the middle slash end of their career because they've seen it both ways. They've really experienced the transition. Um, so I think they're the ones who've experienced it the hardest because they've actually seen what it could have been like when it was better. Mm. And when I say better, I've used that in quotes because it was actually technically worse in terms of harder, but they definitely enjoyed it more. Now, it's there's too many restrictions, too much uh, demoralisation, and it's, it is it is crushing. So this new contract came in right at the end of my med school career and at, right at the start. So I started in August 2016. And I don't think they rolled out the full effects where I was working until December 2016. So I, I'm i not the best person to ask in terms of how things have changed, but I will say the exception reports doesn't surprise me. And I'll definitely tell you that that is an underestimation because mm-hmm. those are the official exception reports. Some people like me who I could be staying an hour or late a week, I couldn't even be bothered to put in an exception report. I really should do, actually. Um, but you... It, it is tough. We're so stretched and you can you can feel it. You can, you know, just even last week I was on my own with, you know, half the ward by myself. And whilst that's manageable, like I can do it. I mean, if I was a new doctor, maybe not, but I, I can handle that. It's painful when you know that there are people there, but we're so stretched so thin and they're... We, you know, it cuts into my personal life. It cuts into my energy levels. Mm. I'm ill now, and I. Oh, but you're always ill. I'm There's always always ill. Something. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's the fact of working in a hospital, but putting that to the side, I would say that it's, you know, you you just get so worn down. You get so worn down. And I was talking to my friend. He's a, he's more senior, and he did a project in a different in a different hospital to the one I'm working in about changing the rotor. And the, I think, staff levels and da-da-da-da-da. But essentially, there were, when they changed the rotor to a more amenable and, you know, pleasant shift pattern, there were fewer sicknesses, fewer absences. And it doesn't surprise me at all. Not because people are getting sick less, but 
they're, they're less likely to call in sick, less likely to be worn down. If you know that you want to be there with your team, you're more likely to, if you're on that 50% border of like, oh, I could stay in bed or I could go into work because I'm I'm ill, you're more likely to be like, oh, I'll suck it up and go in. Hmm. I'm going to work tonight. I'm on a night shift tonight. But quite honestly, if I was a different person, I, I would not be surprised if I called in sick because I, you just you just wonder what for. You, you just feel like part of, you just feel like another cog, you know, in the system. And I... It it is quite sad, and I do I do feel more sorry for the people above me who have seen it in better days. It's we're so stretching the the view of the NHS. When you see people complaining about the NHS online, and you see people saying I couldn't get this, and I had to wait this is now is. Do you think anyone in the NHS really wants to, you know, be be providing suboptimal service? Do you really think we want to have all these bureaucratic restrictions? Do you really want to think? You know, when people come in and they say, oh, I saw a different doctor last day, but this doctor's not on the water today. Do you really think we want to be shifted around ward to ward? I've got colleagues who have could be on five different wards in a week, despite them only being assigned to one ward because of cross covering and sicknesses and just general thin rotors. Like the rotor is so thin that, yeah, I mean, I can't think of a great metaphor for being thin. I'll come back to you <laughs> with that one. But Thinly spread. Thinly spread. Yeah. So thinly spread. It's it's it's. You have to, you have to experience it to realize it. But we all just put up with it. We all just put up with it. It's so interesting you end on that point, really. But um, when I was researching for this episode, I saw a piece of commentary from someone called Simon Fleming. He's an orthopedic registrar, and he was the past president of the British Orthopedic Trainees Association. And he said it's quite a controversial statement, but he said that there is a significant amount of Stockholm syndrome among trainee doctors. Um, this was off the back of the report that was released uh, last month that I mentioned. Um, and you know, you have this at odds with, as you say, the complaints which t- I find quite baffling. To be honest, if anyone had, you know, an ounce of curiosity or. Um, Common sense, I feel that you would do a bit of research. I feel like you would have a look at some of the, I mean, thousands of articles that are out there about what's happening to our National Health Service, something which Prince William called last year one of our country's greatest treasures. Um, It's polarised, the opinion of of the NHS, and obviously it's under threat of being privatised by the Tories. Um, But to, to, to call an entire generation of doctors at the moment under stress, suffering from Stockholm Syndrome... I mean, thoughts on that? That is quite a statement. Are we suffering from Stockholm Syndrome? Are you held? And also the definition of that, might I add, is that people <laughs> feel empathy or sympathy for those who have kidnapped or held them captive. Just to be clear, I didn't know what Stockholm Syndrome was. <laughs> I'm well educated. <laughs> no, um, no, it's... Is it Stockholm Syndrome? I... I think so. I do you know what? Yeah, actually, because mm-hmm. if I was to think about anyone else in any other industry, they would not stand for the absolute bull sugar. I don't know what I could say. <laughs> I don't know what kind of radio this is going you on. Can say it ever. Let oh, it out. Safe space. <laughs> no, but like people would not stand for like all the bull that we have to deal with. It's yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's not like the worst thing in the world, and you know every day is a horrible day. But there are some things you're like wow, I really have to do this and this is just how it is. Okay, I guess I guess it's tough and I guess I have to do it. Like, you you kind of rationalise everything. It's really bizarre and I, th- I want to say a lot of it is because we're in healthcare. If we were in a law firm or we were, you know, in finance or whatever, something without, you know, human lives, 
at stake, I think I don't think the Stockholm syndrome would be so much. Like obviously, there's a, in every industry and in every company, people are putting up with crap. But there's a lot of I guess it has to be done. NHS is on its knees. Yeah. Then there are only so many of us, or so few of us, and it's so difficult. And yeah, I guess it has to be done. Like I wish I could think of concrete examples, but you know. It's, I guess, rotors even, just the way the rotors are. Like, I don't, you know, I know people who go into, including myself in the past, have gone into, you know, consecutive days and gone straight into nights, had one day off and come back into days again. And you just think, is is that okay? Mm. And it doesn't help that the so-called older generation had it worse than us. So <laughs> everyone's like, well, this is a relative improvement. I'm just like, yeah, but it's still awful. Yeah. But you just kind of deal with it. I guess goes back to what we said at the beginning of this episode. You know, from 16, you're like, this is going to be the life of a doctor and it's going to be yes. really difficult. And you're going to be working this. Are you ready to deal with this? And are you ready to handle this? And you're like, yeah, 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 I am. I am. So you're like, yeah, I can <laughs> handle this. So, you know, it's like that meme where like there's a dog in the middle of fire and it's burning. You're like, this is fine. <laughs> this, this is this is this is fantastic. That actually, it becomes like your baseline. Yeah. Level I, of normality. You hit nail on the head. Like your 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 barometer, your thermostat, like your baseline is just so adjusted that you don't even know what's normal anymore. And I think. You know, I guess it's hard. I've got friends in the city who are working, you know, they can do like crazy shifts from like sure. eight till eight, uh, you know, and even longer than that. And they have to stay to get it done. So don't, don't, you know, let me not play my own violin. Like it, it is tough everywhere. But I feel a lot of these other industries are remunerated and, you know, compensated for all this hardship. And I, and I feel like that is the key, key, key difference. Nobody is saying that any other job is easier or harder or whatever but I feel like there's a bit of balance in a lot of other industries but because it's A, a public service and B, it's playing on the heartstrings of being a healthcare and a so-called vocation I think you do sometimes you do feel a bit of grief but then you also are just like nah, I came into this career for me and to help people and yeah. I, don't, I, I would say fewer and fewer people are feeling that I've got so many friends who are like nah screw this like I'm doing the bare minimum nine to five leaving on the dot this and that so that is becoming more and more of the culture doesn't surprise me in the slightest that is yeah. actually scary as um, someone who was born on the NHS has had many I mean I've been a very sickly person throughout my life um, have used the, not as nasal as me though you are nasal today have <laughs> used the NHS high key nasal have <laughs> um, used the NHS so many times um, and I have so much respect for doctors and nurses and anyone who is involved in the care of our country and we're so lucky to have what we have and the fact that those who are working in this industry are feeling so beaten down and um burned out by the uh, the pressures that the, not just the pressures actually it's this, it's the working environment that they have to face which may be alleviated somewhat as you said by a bit of teamwork and having that camaraderie and maybe having some yeah having a glass of wine after work with with your colleague who you just got through a difficult day yeah. with um but as you say the remuneration is not what it's not anything compared to those who do the same hours in a law firm those who do the same hours in an investment bank at a private equity fund um yeah even in places like recruitment and sales, you just don't have the same balance where you can enjoy life outside of the office. I mean, the office being the ward, the office being the GP surgery. You know, it's not something which is comparable. And I'm so sad that people feel, that doctors are feeling how they're feeling about this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think people would like money, but I mean, I don't think, I wouldn't even say for a second that this is about money I don't think anyone is saying 
oh, we need more money. But I think they if need to be... If we were paid better, it would be different. Yeah, I mean... it wouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, I think there just needs to be a better balance in some way, shape or form. But no, the system wants to cripple you in any in every shape or form. Um what I will say about the NHS, like, yeah, it's fantastic, but it's not perfect. There's loads of flaws. There's ways it could be more efficient, and there's ways that we, you know, waste a lot of resources and money. So it's not perfect, but we are very, very fortunate with our healthcare Agreed. system, you know? And, you know, as someone who's used the NHS, someone who's worked in the NHS, I, you know, we, we are. We, we are very fortunate to have what we have on the NHS that it does, even though people's points may be valid you do take it a bit personally as a worker in the nhs mm. when people are criticizing it but i i mean of course i don't think anyone's silly they're not like you know for nhs and country they do rec- they do recognize that you know there are the things which could be improved and yeah i think yeah i agree with you in terms of it it'd be some kind of balance would be preferred in this job maybe we'll get there yeah can you I- tell us about one of the scariest experiences or a low light that you may have experienced over the past three years of your doctor career? A low light. Hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of like scary experiences. I think anything dynamic and dramatic in front of your face, i.e. someone pouring out or throwing up blood is, if you're not really phased by that, then I think you have a, yeah, <laughs> I think, and I, I, I'm not even squeamish, but I think that is just kind of like this has happened in front of my face. So I'm shocking. Think, I've had I've had people die in front of me, but I I don't know if that's necessarily the the worst thing. I think. Um, oh yeah, actually, there was a time when I came into work. Early, or actually, I, I generally go into work a bit early, but I went into work maybe half an hour early, and I'd already come into the ward, and there was a patient who I'd seen the day before, um, learning difficulties, spina bifida. Um, he needed what we call a manual evacuation, which means he is um, he you needed to use your hands to clear out his rectum um, of feces, just because he, he the nerves in this condition mm. weren't working in that area so he didn't have control of the bowels anyway um, I've kind of blocked this, my, this story out of my mind essentially I think he he might have perforated his bowels because of build up of feces because I don't think he'd been cleared out um, or something like that yeah. it's, I mean uh, the stories are a bit hazy and also I, I, I don't know the exact details and I don't necessarily want to share all of them but essentially there I came into the morning and he was having a cardiac arrest and there was everyone around which is quite unusual not not that cardiac arrests tend to happen at a certain time but you don't expect to come into work when you're like oh I'm going to come in early and prepare the notes and stuff to see that happening and it was like on the floor in the toilet area of the ward and everyone is around him and then this patient went to intensive care um which is not unusual post-cardiac arrest. People do go to intensive care, but it was just very, you know, family around, everyone around, doctors, nurses, this, this, and that. The people who come in, including myself and the day team around, I think the medical student was in there. And yeah, this patient went to intensive care. So that, was, that was not nice to come in to work yeah. on. And, you know, these people can be fine the day before. Um, yeah, these people can be fine the day before. I'd say... Another low light was also same ward, a patient who had 
a cancer. They didn't know where it came from, which body part it was. They he had a met- metastases, so that means cancer spread into other parts of the body. Mm. But they didn't know where the actual origin of the cancer was, and he was going to be discussed. He had liver metastases, if I remember correctly, and he was very yellow and what we call jaundiced. And his red blood cells were low, which in general, someone with anemia, someone with that we would just transfuse. And I think what I remember, he was just deteriorating so fast. And I was thinking, and he was still talking to me, but he didn't have any family or friends or anyone he wanted to contact. I actually remember because we wanted to contact his next of kin a few days before but he's like don't talk to my brother talk to my sister there's maybe a friend or something but he just you know didn't really have anyone around and I remember thinking I need to sort this guy out like I need to get the transfusion sorted I um, he started getting very agitated and I was um, I he, he started getting very agitated and he was very yellow and I was thinking I need to take these this blood test I need to go and you need to send it off to the lab to get it matched for a transfusion and it was very you know I was like uh, I won't call him his name but I was like let's call him Mark I was like Mark Mark like you know you need to uh, you know I'm here for you and everything and I remember going across the ward to, to a different ward to go and send off his blood test so that we can get some red blood cells to transfuse him and he was just again very agitated. I got back and he died and he was still yellow, but just frozen and, you know, with, you know, no friends or family around him. And the last person he saw was me. And I just, and I remember that actual week we'd had a couple of other deaths, but um, the other two were a bit more expected, but this was just, I don't know. It was just, I look back, I haven't, ever, I, you know, it's funny you ask, I haven't thought about this in a while, but yeah. it's just, you know what? What? What a sad way to go without everyone around you. It's not. I mean, I guess it was a, a so-called dignified death. That's what we like to call. It. That's what we aim for in the NHS. But it was quite sudden for me. The fact that I was still actively treat, looking to treat him, and I was on my own at the time. It's you know I think back now, and that's that's pretty sad. That that is actually. It's quite galling, and yeah, like when I say it out loud, I'm probably saying a matter of fact, but I, you know, uh, it, it, it is hits. sad. It, it hits. hits you in the chest. It's, it's right it's, in the chest. Um, yeah. From everything you've told us, it's a profession that requires nerves of steel and crystal clear logic and structured approaches to management of this, well, whatever diagnosis or prognosis this person may have. But you also do, of course, you have a heart that is pure and wants to help people that seems to be right at the core of the motivations for going into work every day making sure that you do say that extra half an hour or hour or two hours later so that this patient has everything they need on their record so that you can provide the level of service that you feel so strongly about providing um what what words of wisdom or advice might you have for aspiring med students who might be listening who are thinking of giving everything that they have to the NHS and to the world of medicine? Um, so a couple of pointers. I'd say practically talk to people at different stages. You need to talk to the medical student. You need to talk to the SHO. You need to talk to the registrar. You need to talk to the new consultant. You need to talk to the old consultant and just find out how everyone is at every stage because my experiences now are a bit different to when I was a fresh doctor. My experiences talking to um, registrars you know, they can empathize so well with me. They're they, far better than a consultant can. 
because they're closer to my stage of my career and they can also give me a bit of a, a light or darkness at the end of the tunnel, whatever, mm. <laughs> however you see it. <laughs> and so I'd say that to aspiring doctors. I'd say... Do your research. Do your research. Meet as many people as you possibly can. Yeah, because everyone will have different experiences. Like, obviously, you've asked me some quite extremist questions. So I'm probably given a lot of highlights, a lot of lowlights, but there's a lot of, you know, it's very banal at times. Um, <laughs> and... You know, that can be quite a mundane experience. So talk to everyone just so, to know if you're ready for it. I think be very clear of why you want to do it. Because even even if it's something as superficial as money, which I highly don't recommend <laughs> because, I mean, they're quicker ways to get rich. But if whatever your reasons are, you know, and that's up to you, just know why you're doing it because the job will break you, as I'm sure many jobs will, but this job will definitely break you. There's, a, there's only 100% chance yeah, of being broken at some point yeah, to your emotional state, to your physical state. I, like, you know, find me one doctor who's come out of the system unscathed. Like, I'll literally wait for you because, <laughs> uh, you know, you just won't see it but in some way, shape or form. Um, but if you know why you're doing it, I think that really does help to keep you going. You need to keep that in the rear view, in the front view, you know, in every view. And the reason I talk with so much vigor and enthusiasm mm -hmm. is because I genuinely enjoy it. Don't, like, don't get twisted. I, I'm, I'm like, you know, frustrated all the time. I, you know, I could go through like a two to four week period where I'm just like, I don't even want to do this job anymore. But I'm very, very aware of why I want to do this job. And it's not the same as, you know, my best friends who are doctors too. So, yeah. and that's fine, but... If you know why you want to do it and where you want to go, then I think that's important. So that is what I'd, I'd say to aspiring medical students and doctors or everything. You know, there are a lot of other things like, you know, have this characteristic, have this characteristic. But at the end of the day, if you if you know why you want to do it, you'll carry through. And I know that's very much like a, a Disney fairy tale message. <laughs> like just whatever is in your heart just will, gu <laughs> will guide you. <laughs> but it is the 100% truth. I think that's something which I hear a lot in my job. We talk about motivations. Some people say, do say money, um, which is fine. Everyone has their own prerogative and their own goals in life. And we shouldn't demonize um, anyone's reasons for doing what they do 10 hours a day, five days a week. Um, as long as it's, I guess, what they're doing is vaguely within the realms of moral reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, I no, I think... Hey, that a hustle's a hustle. <laughs> it's very true. Um, but I do think that keeping your heart and your gut at the centre of, of, of your gravity going forward, um, having it direct you and being your reasons, as we've said, for getting out of bed is totally valid. Um, and Evo, thank you so much for your candour and for telling us what doctors do. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. There's a lot of things I've had to think about, which I don't usually think about. So... Thought broken yeah. for both guest and host, and hopefully listeners. Cover the low lights. Cover what I like. Yeah. Didn't I cover the time strange. that the um, the old lady slapped me on the bum on the way out after she collapsed. Um, I thought that was quite <laughs> a, a key moment of my my first month as a doctor. <laughs> Inappropriate, like. but uh, Inappropriate. <laughs> Kath, wherever you are. <laughs> Thank you.
Wow, how lucky we are to get an insight into the days of people who dedicate their lives to keeping us healthy and most of the time alive. He's humble and modest, but I'm sure everyone who knows him will agree that he is a bit of a humble hero. Ebo actually ended up getting a job in London. I'm sure you're all desperate to hear. So I get my best friend back and he passed his exam. So he's absolutely smashing it and I'm so happy for him. On a broader scale, as of 11th of June 2019, which happens to be the day that I'm recording this, there has been developments um, with regards to the new contract proposal for junior doctors, which thus far seem to be good news. Headlines are additional pay for doctors working the most weekends, an enhanced rate of pay for shifts that finish after midnight and 4am, a new nodal pay point for senior registrars at ST6 and above to recognise senior decision makers, tougher fines for trusts that breach rules with fines paid to guardians of safe working calculated at four times the NHS improvement locum rate rather than the salary of the doctor, annual pay lifts of 2% a year 2023 and £1,000 extra for all less than full-time trainees. So things are really happening all around us. I wasn't expecting to come across that piece of news today when I was doing my research but these regulations and rules govern the lives of the people who look after our lives and I think it's important that we're all more aware of the implications that this will have on the day-to-day of people that we are close to, people that we might know through friends. Uh, And I hope that next time you meet a doctor, hopefully now, you'll have more context and you can truly understand what it is that they do. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or if you'd like to hear your job represented on the show, please email whatdoyoupod at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this, please like, subscribe and share. I'll see you next time for another episode of What Do You Do? Thanks to everyone for listening, to Soho Radio for their awesome audio and to Ron Powell for the music and production. <laughs>